so yes, that's the the thought process behind the two percent sheer terror and the ninety eight percent we'll call it other. Um, we, can, I, like we can call it vigilance and engagement. Exactly, uh, vigilance is a great one. It, it takes a huge amount of vigilance. Um, so yes, so we do have a plan. Just as a pilot has a flight plan, we have an anesthesia plan, and and just you know very similarly. Again, I can't speak to what a flight plan includes, but I would imagine that in addition to you know we're going to go from here to there and need this much fuel, etc. Welcome to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their specialty, and we focus on career questions such as what their professional life is like and how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. If you haven't already, we suggest that you first listen to the main Medical Murmurs podcast featuring the same guest before you listen to this one. Today... I'm talking with Dr. Jed Walpole, an anesthesiologist and intensivist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and the creator and host of the ACRAC podcast, that's A-C-C-R-A-C, on anesthesia and critical care. It's also, well, what are the contingency plans, right? What if X, Y, or Z happens? And that is also part of that presentation. So I expect the residents to say to me, all right, here's my plan. Here's what I am worried about in this patient. Here's what could go wrong. An easy example would be, you know, this patient has a history of coronary artery disease. They're not having cardiac surgery today or tomorrow. They're having, you know, a, a lap coli or they're having a bowel resection or they're having a, you know, pancreatic uh, surgery or whatever it may be. But uh, because of that coronary artery disease, I am concerned that they could have some cardiac ischemia. So here's my plan to prevent that, right? I'm going to keep their heart rate low. How are you going to do that? I'm going to do that with beta blockade. I'm going to have an esmolol drip ready, et cetera. So there is a plan, and then there are contingency plans. There's what you're worried about and how you're going to prepare for those things in case they happen. Another obvious one would be, you know, I'm worried they might get into some bleeding. I'm going to have blood typed, crossed, and ready. Do I, you know, then you might think, do I need to have it in the room in a cooler so that it's, you know, one second away? Or is it safe to have in what we call the hemobank, which is kind of a coolage storage thing that's in the OR suite, but not in the individual room. So it takes another extra couple of minutes to get um, so, you know, this is all part of that plan. So that plan happens the night before. So we have that discussion. It's also a great opportunity to do some teaching. Um, uh, there were, there are some of you always hear these classic stories of the attendings who will keep residents on the phone for, you know, an hour and a half. I'm not going to name names, but I very, very distinctly remember having an attending that fit this description when I was a resident. And, you know, as much as you can learn a ton, obviously having a one-on-one -on -one discussion with an attending, you also have to remember that this resident is at home potentially with their family, potentially waiting to put their children to sleep after we're done with this discussion or go to sleep themselves, depending on what time it is. And so, uh, you know, I, I think you have to be reasonable. So I try to, you know, point out a couple of things on the phone, but tell them, you know, we'll talk about this more tomorrow when we have all day together. So that discussion happens the night before. And then I, um, now I will tell you that I'm a little, um, I think unusual in the sense that I absolutely cannot start my day without working out. Almost always that's running a couple of days a week it's swimming. So on a typical day, I will wake up around 4.30 and I will go for a run, um, usually about five to six miles, depending on exactly how much time I have. And then I come back, shower. If my kids are awake, I'll give them a quick kiss goodbye. They are either, it's kind of right at the time they may or may not be waking up. Uh, my wife is usually still asleep. And so I don't see her. And then I uh, drive to work. 
again, I'm lucky. Uh, Baltimore is a great city that you can live uh, very close to to work. And so I have only about a, at that time in the day, about a 12 to 14 minute drive to work. Um, so I arrive at work about 6.45, um, get changed into my operating room uh, scrubs, and then I go up to the preoperative area. One of the nice things about being an attending is that I don't have to set up the room unless I'm working alone. It's rare at Hopkins for an attending to work alone, but it does happen. And if I were alone, meaning I had a one room that was just me, no resident, then I would, of course, have to set up that room. Setting up a room involves making sure that the anesthesia machine is checked and working, making sure that there's appropriate uh, emergency devices like a bougie and a, um, a uh, an extra oxygen tank and an Ambu bag and making sure that all the airway equipment and the suction is working. Of course, making sure that I have my airway set up. So much like in the emergency room where you have to have your emergency airway stuff all set and tested, right? We have to make sure we have a laryngoscope and a handle and a blade and a uh, tube and multiple other options, LMAs. And then of course we have to pull up all the medications that we need ready, both for induction and then to deal with any potential crises that come. And that for an experienced resident or, or attending, obviously. So for a senior resident or attending, you can probably do that setup well in a half an hour or maybe even a little less. So, and by the way, just to explain to the non-physicians out there, LMAs are one of the many options you have if you have difficulty putting a tube into someone's windpipe. That's right. Uh, although I will say that, um, so it stands for laryngeal mask airway. It is, uh, the way I describe it to patients is it's like a little mask that goes under your tongue and helps you breathe. And we do some cases just with an LMA right from the get-go. So um, simple cases that don't involve a laparoscopy, don't involve a lot of uh, need for positive pressure. Uh, an example might be, um, you know, a case being done on a patient's leg for a, you know, a a uh, lipoma excision or even for a, um, an ankle uh, fracture or something like that, where they might have a regional nerve block, so they don't need that much anesthesia. And then, you know, we're just going to put an LMA in and be able to help them breathe. Um, so sometimes we use them right from the get-go, but they are also the first, as you said, go-to rescue device. If, for example, we induce, meaning we put a patient to sleep and we cannot ventilate them with a mask or get a tube in, that's a crisis situation. And the first thing to try then is an LMA, which will often be able to save the day. So uh, yes, we have all that ready, the medications pulled up, and that takes about that much time. Luckily, as an attending, most of the time I have residents who are doing that. So I get up to the preoperative area, not having to set up a, a room, and I will go see my first two patients. So the first patient for each of my two rooms. The residents will be either be seeing them at that time or have already seen them. And so I'll go in, I'll introduce myself, I'll say hello. Um, I'll just verify that the resident has has in fact seen them and gotten their consent. And then at 730, we go back to the operating room. Uh, ideally, my rooms, my two rooms start slightly different times. So one resident may go back at, you know, 728, and the other at 732. And so, uh, you know, one will be putting on monitors and getting the patient pre-oxygenated, so letting them breathe some oxygen while I'm putting the breathing tube in with the other resident. And then I run to my other room, get the breathing tube in with that resident. And then I'll go back and forth helping them putting in the extra IVs. And if they need an arterial line or a central line, making sure all of that gets done. Uh, and that's how the morning starts. Then... Uh, we give our residents a 15-minute morning break. So uh, once they get settled in, I will come in. When my What I usually do, and I'm sure this varies from attending to attending, but I'll come in to one of my rooms and I'll chat with the resident and do a little kind of real-time feedback. So, of course, I always ask them, you know, is this a good time for you? 
you, would you like to do some feedback? And I tell them, if, in case we haven't worked together, I'll say, you know, I like to do feedback along the way, because if we wait until the end of the day, then either you're running to get home or I'm running to get home and, you know, we may not have time. So I say, if it works for you, you know, is this a good time? And inevitably they say, sure. And so then I'll say, okay, let's talk through what happened. So, you know, I'll tell them, uh, give them some feedback on their preoperative discussion. If I got to see any of it, uh, I'll talk to a meeting with the patient. I'll tell, tell the, talk to them about their preoperative preparation and anesthesia plan that we discussed and how well organized that was, et cetera. I will talk about the initial intubation, the room setup, the IV placement. We'll just give the, you know, it may be that that went great. It may be there are some things they could, you know, improve on. Um, and so I'll give them feedback on that. And then we'll chat about something. And I'll usually ask them if there's any questions they have or any topic they would particularly like to discuss. Or I'll say, you know, great, let's talk about, you know, this patient has a pheochromocytoma Let's talk about what that is and what, you know, I know we talked a little last night about the anesthetic considerations. You know, what would you do if in five minutes, you know, the patient became profoundly hypertensive? What would be your first and second and third approach to that? And so, you know, we'll have a little teaching time there. And then I'll tell them, you know, why don't you go take a break? I'll stay here. They'll go take their 15 minute break. And then when they come back, I will go to my other room, do the same thing there. And then it depends on whether... This is why you're running your first case. Is that right? This is both case. So in, yeah, in right. both rooms, there's a case going on. Yeah. Um, and of course, while I'm teaching the resident, I am also one or both of us, but certainly I am watching the patient, watching the monitor. And that's a skill that comes with being an attending and having to, you know, you, that you need to work on is how do you teach and uh, be vigilant of the patient at the same time. Um, now, I find that if the teaching involves the patient, that makes it a lot easier because you're saying, let's look at the monitor. Let's say, what if that number right up there changed right now? But as you're talking, you're looking at the monitor. Let, let me ask you something. Can you just walk us through what it's like to run a typical case? I'm, I don't know what we should pick here, a colon resection or something like that. You know, what, what do you actually do once, you know, once you're past all the, uh, the setup and you've taken consent? Right. So we're set up, we're consented, we bring the patient back, we put them, first thing we do is, well, I should say, hopefully the first thing we do is continue to reassure the patient. Because I will tell you, I've, I've actually been lucky enough never to have surgery, but from people who have, I hear you really feel like you are, you know, just like an object with all these people kind of rushing in, you know, in gowns and masks, you can't really see them, they're just rushing around, sticking stuff on you, you don't know what's happening. So I really try to continually communicate with the patient when we get back to the room to say, okay, you know, first of all, just on the way back, hopefully just chatting, tell me about your kids, you know, et cetera. And then when we get back to say, okay, now we're going to put some stickers on. They can be a little cold. I'm sorry. They're going to go on your hand and your, you know, your chest and your side. Um, and we're going to put something on your finger that's going to help us measure your oxygen levels. And we're going to put a blood pressure cuff on your arm. That's going to get really tight the first time, but then it won't be quite as tight after that. And I apologize that it's going to be really tight that first time. Uh, you know, the nurses are going to be putting some, some squeezers on your legs and a sticker on your thigh, you know, so I try to explain what's going on so that they know. Um, and then, uh, once we have all the monitors on and we make sure that they're all working so we can see the heart rate and the blood pressure and the oxygen saturation and the end tidal carbon dioxide. So as the patient breathes into the mask, we see the carbon dioxide that's coming out on a tracing. And then we're doing pre-oxygenation, meaning before we stop the patient's breathing to put the breathing tube in. We want their lungs to be full of oxygen. And so we let them breathe from that mask that's delivering 100% oxygen for about two or three minutes. We can measure that oxygen. And so we know when their lungs are full of it. And then uh, when the resident's ready, 
and I'm ready, we will induce the patient, which means I will give medications through the IV that will both put them to sleep and stop their breathing. And then uh, once that's complete, the resident will put the breathing tube in, uh, obviously with my help and support if they need it. Uh, once the breathing tube is in, we verify that it's in the right place. So we want it to be in the trachea, not the esophagus. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. For the benefit of medical students who are thinking about anesthesia, one of the first things I'd like to ask about is who is suited to anesthesia? You know, when firstly, if you're talking to, to students and you're trying to like, you know, get a sense of who you think is going to enjoy it, who's going to flourish in it, and who might do better in a different specialty, what's your sense? So I think you have to be a, there's several things. Uh, anesthesia is a really, I think of it as a very wide open field in the sense that uh, you can be from very a lot of walks of life with a lot of different interests and and love anesthesia. And I'll give just some easy examples. You can do any kind of research in anesthesia, right? I mean, you would never go into neurosurgery and decide to do kidney research. You would never go into cardiology and do brain research, right? That doesn't make sense. But in anesthesia, we take care of patients with issues in every way, in every organ and system and every... So you can be an anesthesiologist who does kidney research, brain research, heart research, lung research, right? It doesn't matter. So you can, so it's really broad in that sense. And similarly, you can be really interested in peds and pediatrics. And so you can be a pediatric anesthesiologist. You can be really interested in OB and be an OB anesthesiologist. You can be interested in critical care and be an intensivist anesthesiologist like I am. So you really, it's one of those fields that you don't have to have a really narrow, you can like a lot of things and find all of them in anesthesia. So that's one is that it's appealing, I think, to a lot of people um, with a lot of different interests. I do think you have to be a good communicator. If you have a hard time speaking up in a crisis, if you have a hard time, uh, you know, explaining what's going on and acting decisively, um, if you really like to kind of take your time and be very deliberative and, and you, uh, you know, I mean, it's fine if you do that, but if you cannot move beyond that when needed, if you cannot, you know, um, kind of act uh, decisively and take control of a room uh, when it's necessary, then that I think is a is really hard for you to be an anesthesiologist, um, because while while as we talked about, there isn't always lots of action. When there is, you you it's you. You know you have to be able to do it and do it well. Um, and if you can't, there's very serious consequences to it. So I think if you really like to very slowly think things through, and when you can't and have to just be decisive and act, that you don't like that and you can't do it well, then that I think doesn't work. Another thing is that if you crave the spotlight, if you want to be the star of the room, then it's not a good field for you. And I say that because f with some exceptions, but for the most part, patients don't come to Johns Hopkins because they want their anesthesia done by Walpaw, right? They come because they want their Whipple done by the famous Whipple surgeon, or they want their cardiac surgery done by the famous cardiac surgeon they don't have a clue who's going to do their anesthesia. And for most patients, they they don't care, right? They, they, they'll be assigned an anesthesiologist, and as long as it's a decent person, they'll, they'll be fine. And so patients aren't going to say, you know, when they leave the hospital, they're not going to go home to their friends and say, oh, you know who saved me? You know who was the, my doctor was Dr. Walpaw, right? They probably won't remember my name, and they won't talk about me as the person who played a big role in their life. They will say, that orthopedic surgeon gave me my knee back 
or that cardiac surgeon, you know, saved my heart. Um, and they'll tell that story and they will write a letter to the cardiac surgeon thanking them, or they may come back to the hospital with a present for the cardiac surgeon. And again, it's not always, I mean, every once in a while we do have a patient remember us and, and come back and thank us, but very rarely. So you, if you, you know, and it's okay. If you have that ego where you feel like you want to be the one who's seen as the star, then it's not a good field. I would think more about being a surgeon in that, in that setting. But if you are content knowing that you are uh, really playing a vital role, but that is sometimes more in the background and not always going to get the, the, you know, overt recognition, then uh, it can be a great field. Um, So those are some things I think about. Are there things that when you're talking to medical students, you can see in them that, you know, when they're, if they're just asking in an open-ended way, like, you know, for some guidance, might be indicators of the kind of things you're talking about that they might prefer a different specialty. How would you get a sense of that? It's hard, you know, because if it's a med student who I don't know well, then, you know, it's hard for me to get a feel from even a meeting or two about really their kind of personality. I'll ask them the, the questions I just said. I'll say, you know, are, do you feel, are you the type of person who like, who craves the spotlight or, you know, um, how do you feel in a crisis? Do you feel like you can be decisive and act kind of well? And it doesn't have to be a, a medical crisis because as a medical student, you're not an expert yet. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So if someone does want to do anesthesia, what would you recommend for them? You know, they're they're going into their MS3 year now. Mm-hmm. So you clearly want to do an anesthesia rotation, right? So some medical schools require it, some don't. If they don't, if it, your medical school doesn't, then figure out how to do one. Hopefully you have one at your medical school. And if not, then, you know, look around for a visiting rotation you can do somewhere else. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to apply into anesthesia not having done it. Because, of course, programs are going to be very skeptical. How do you know you like it? How do you know you would want to do it if you haven't done it? So you really need to do a rotation and uh, ideally, you know, a month long rotation, some places only have two weeks and that's okay. Um, I would highly suggest doing an ICU rotation. Again, some medical schools require it, some don't, but it's a very integral, even if you don't become an intensivist, a lot of it overlaps. It's a very kind of integral part of, of anesthesia too, is critical care. Um, so I think those are really important things. And then like I recommend, no matter what you want to go into, talk to people. So find anesthesiologists preferably at your institution who you can sit down with and, you know, maybe visit in the OR, sit down and talk to them, ask them about their career, ask them about why they love what they do, um, what their career is like. So, you know, what I love about what you're doing, Paris, is kind of providing that for people who are interested in different specialties so they can listen to this podcast and think, okay, I've now heard what one anesthesiologist kind of has to say about the field, but you want to get as much of that as you can. I always tell people, like I said, don't, the way where medical students are kind of taught is you do your clerkships and then decide based on your clerkship experience. And I say, don't discount your clerkship experience completely, but but don't decide only based on your experience. Like I said about emergency medicine, you're going to have an amazing time on your clerkship in emergency medicine. That doesn't mean emergency medicine is the right specialty for you. Talk to people, ask them what their life is like as an attending. Ask, same in anesthesia, ask attendings, what is their life like? What do they do? What is their day like? What is their career? What pieces of their career do they have? So, for example, as you've mentioned, I, uh, you know, one piece of my career is doing anesthesia. Another piece is doing critical care. Another piece is running a residency program. Another piece is having a podcast. Another piece is doing some medical education research. So I have many aspects to my career. Um, And that's something you can do in anesthesia. Maybe not as easy to do in some other fields. So you want to really talk to people and get a feel for what they do. What's going to make them successful at matching into a program? 
So as always, right, uh, there are the basic things that while they probably shouldn't matter as much as they do, they do. So you, you do need to do well on your USMLE exams. You do need to do well in your clerkships, meaning you have to get whatever your school gives, honors grades and and all that. You know, you don't have to have a perfect transcript and you don't have to have a 280 on step one, but you do the better you do on the tests and the better you do in your grades, the better, the higher chance you're going to have of, of getting interviews and, and potentially matching at, you know, top programs. Um, again, I say probably shouldn't because standardized testing is just not a good way to tell if someone's going to be a good doctor, but you know, we get a thousand applications for 25 spots. We can't go through a thousand applications in detail and read every note and every letter and, you know, interview every one of those thousand people to figure out if they, we really think they'd fit. So we have to use things that are more objective and easier to use. We don't fully rely. We don't, you know, cut people out based on a score, but we we use that data as everybody does. So there are going to be some red flags that are going to get an application put away from consideration. Correct. And there are going to be some green flags that get a lot of attention. What are some of the red flags? And if we're going to call it that, a, a green flag. So, you know, red flags are going to be things like failing exams, so failing the USMLEs, failing a course. It's not an absolute red flag. Sometimes, pe- and my advice to people is if you have failed a course in medical school, you have to explain that in your personal statement because if you just leave it unexplained, then people will assume the worst. But if you explained it and there's a good reason for it, you know, we, we have absolutely offered interviews to people who have failed a course when there's a, you know, you had a family member who died, you know, in the middle of the course or, you know, something like that happened. And, you know, we understand things happen, but you have to explain it or else there's no way for us to know. So, you know, but those are relative red flags. Failing an exam, like a USMLE exam, failing a course, um, I'd say absolute, uh, you know, uh, deal breakers, absolute red flags would be things like, you know, uh, having multiple professionalism violations, uh, being on ap- academic probation, um, you know, those kind of things. Having a letter of, re- I mean, I can't, this is so hard to imagine. It actually, I'm having a letter of recommendation that actually says, I do, I cannot, you know, I would not take this person. I've never seen that, but that would certainly be a major red flag. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, another a personal statement that is clearly not been checked, right? It's full of typos and grammatical mistakes. And, you know, it's, it's clearly no one looked at it and, and, uh, helped edit it. Um, that's a, just a, a bad sign. So those are some red flags. And then I would say major green flags would be, you know, the opposite of all of those, obviously. Um, certainly the biggest ones I think for us and anyone would be if we know you, right? So if you've come and rotated with us, or if you've rotated somewhere where one of our graduates who we know well has worked, who, if someone comes to me who I know and trust and says, I worked with Paris, on his rotation at, you know, my, my um, anesthesia department. And wow, was he amazing, you know? And what is amazing? It's sure, he, uh, to be honest, I probably care a lot less whether amazing, if they say to me, oh, he knew, he knew everything about the anesthetics. You know, I don't care so much about that because I can teach you about anesthesia and which anesthetics to use and what the doses are. But if they say he was, he worked so hard and he was such a team player man, you know, he was there for the team whenever anybody needed anything. He was willing to stay late if anybody needed help. You know, he didn't have to be asked. He was just a pleasure to be around. I could imagine myself being on call overnight and just enjoying, you know, uh, having him in the OR and chatting. Um, I feel I felt comfortable with him. He was, you know, just so uh, he was he asked questions when he had them. He wasn't overconfident. You know, if he wasn't sure about something, he was comfortable asking. He was comfortable getting feedback, taking feedback. He was happy to get it. He sought out feedback. Uh, you know, those kind of things are uh, are really fantastic. Probably the, the biggest green flags are those ones where we either know you and, and can say that or someone we know knows you. 
And then, you know, it's nice to see lots of great grades. It's nice to see great letters. It's nice to see a really well-crafted personal statement. It's nice to see impressive research, um, though, you know, it's not a deal breaker if you don't have a first author publication. Obviously, many people don't at this stage. Um, and it's nice to see, uh, you know, solid extracurricular activities. We are skeptical of somebody who has done a lot of research and has done no volunteer activities, right? So what that suggests, and maybe it isn't for everybody, but what it suggests is this is somebody who decided they were going to prioritize their own research and, you know, kind of buffing up their CV, but they weren't going to spend any time helping those in need. Um, they were going to spend all their time doing the research, right? Whereas there are it's much more impressive, I think, to have a few less publications, but have spent some time really helping those in the community. Once you've gotten through residency um, and you're building a career, and let's maybe not even say once you're through residency, let's say you're in a residency and what you're looking to do is to build a career that is both successful, according to your own lights, and satisfying and builds longevity. What would be your recommendations for someone building that kind of career in anesthesia or critical care? So I think the first question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to be in an academic practice or a private practice? Uh, that's kind of the, you know, I guess the really the first question is, do I want to do a fellowship or not? And most most of our residents do, not all. It's fine to not. Um, and then either way is whether you want to, fr either from a fellowship or direct from residency, go into private practice or go into academics. It's very, very rare these days to go straight from residency into academic practice. It happens, but it's rare. So if you're going to go into academics, you almost always need to do a fellowship. Not so for private practice, you can do a fellowship, you can also go straight. And so that's a big question. You know, obviously, for me, I, I very much feel fulfilled in academic practice with all the different pieces that we talked about that are part of my career. But I have uh, folk graduates who I'm still very much in touch with who are amazing anesthesiologists who are in practice and love it, you know, and they uh, they get just incredibly dynamic uh, cases. They do a lot more work on their own because they don't have residents, so they, they do work with CRNAs. Um, and so they uh, it's a very different experience. Um, personally, I would miss the teaching uh, of residents uh, as well as some other things, but that's fine. Some people love private practice. So that's just a decision you have to make. And again, like any decision, I think you have to talk to people. Talk to people in private practice. Talk to people in academics. Ask them about their careers. What does it look like? Why did they make that decision? And then you know, make the decision. The nice thing is it's not a permanent one. So either way, if you go into academics and you don't like it, you can always go to private practice. And if you're in private practice and you don't like it, you often, it's maybe a little harder to make the transition that way, but often can get a job in academics. So, you know, you, you make your best guess, what works best for you, your family, and uh, you see how it goes and give it a fair shot. And in terms of building a career that you know, is, is sustainable, enjoyable? What do you recommend for young physicians? So I think, you know, you have to find, uh, a, I think, a good balance. And this is where we've been really bad in medicine. We have tended to um, ignore the importance of self-care, well-being. Um, we have kind of thought, well, young physicians, certainly residents, and then even young attendings should just completely dedicate their lives to their career and, and uh, kind of sacrifice everything else, put everything else on hold. I think it's a huge mistake. I think it's led to the burnout epidemic that we see now. So I think you need to find a balance. Uh, you need to spend time with your family if you have one. You need to, you know, if you want to look for, if you don't have one and you want to look for one, then, then look for, a you know, find, find a partner, find a family, uh, build a family. Um, so I think that's important. And then I think, uh, you know, you do want to pay, you know, you do need to build a career, but you don't want to do it exclusively. So don't forget about your own well-being, you know, can go to the gym, spend some time with the kids. 
sleep in every once in a while, you know, don't, don't um, work yourself to the bone and get burned out. But you do want to figure out what you want your passion in your career to be. And I think I can't speak that much to how that works in private practice. It may be that you, you know, you find a, a clinical area that you really want to be an expert on. But I can tell you that in academics, it is partly that you're going to have done a fellowship. And so you'll focus in on cardiac or OB or pediatrics or intensive care. But then also you're going to be doing something scholarly. So you're going to be doing some some sort of research. So finding that, finding projects that you are passionate about and love. And then deciding, do you want to get into education? You know, do you want to be in a, in a program director type position? Do you want to be a kind of clinical expert? Do you love quality and safety work? And you can imagine kind of leading that aspect of things and being, you know, maybe the quality and safety director for a department. Um, you know, do you, are you interested in the business side of things? And you may, and that's another thing I should have said for private practice. You obviously could think about, I mean, you know, I, I believe you have an MBA. You could think about either getting an MBA or even just getting involved in the business side and helping run a group and in academics too. How, you know, could you think about thinking about the medical operations side of things? Um, we're very lucky that we have an incredibly robust infrastructure in all of these areas here. So our residents have the ability to kind of look at a medical operations research core area, a, a quality and safety core area, a medical education core area, and look at all these and think, oh, I want to pursue that or that or that. So I think you need to think about these different areas and decide how you want to focus. I think if you stay too broad and not focused, it's a little hard to really find a, a, a passion and a niche. And, and one of the things that I think gives satisfaction and helps people thrive and grow in academic medicine is having that niche and feeling like an expert in an area. It's really nice to feel like you're the go-to person for a certain area. It helps you grow professionally. It helps you get promoted. It helps you get invited other places to give talks and to meet people and, uh, you know, to present at conferences and, um, and both learn from and teach your colleagues. And that's an exciting way to, I think, find fulfillment in a, in a career. So discover your special superpower. Exactly. Looking at the last 10 years or so, um, how do you think that anesthesia has changed the most? And what do you think is the most exciting change that's coming up now? So the biggest change, well, I should say, I mean, I haven't, um, this is farther back than 10 years. I think the, the, but one of the big changes that we certainly see is movement more toward a team-based model. And what I mean by that is that there are fewer and fewer anesthesiologists who are just in an OR all day, every day alone, taking care of a patient. It's much more in an academic setting, supervising either residents or CRNAs and in private practice, supervising CRNAs. And I should say, in Maryland, we only have CRNAs, but in other states, there are also AAs, which are anesthesia assistants. So CRNAs, certified registered nurse anesthetists, AAs, anesthesia assistants. So you as an attending have, you know, uh, multiple And, and these rooms. are the equivalent of nurse practitioners and physician assistants in other disciplines. That's exactly right. So you, uh, if you have residents, you could only have two rooms. If you have CRNAs or AAs, you can have multiple rooms that you're supervising. And so that is more commonly happening. That's, that's a change that's been coming for longer than 10 years, but certainly is more and more that way. Can you talk a bit about where you, what, what future directions you see coming? Yeah. So I think the most exciting thing is a real expansion of anesthesiologists into what we call the perioperative arena, meaning thinking about caring for patients pre-op and post-op in addition to intra-op, right? So the traditional anesthesia role is in the operating room. Uh, but we now are seeing more and more anesthesiologists being involved with prehabilitation. 
So this is very exciting. There's lots of great data on this that if you take a patient, I'll give you a couple quick examples, a patient who smokes and you not only help them stop smoking, but you see them and you help them uh, optimize their respiratory status, exercise, do lung rehabilitation, or we call prehabilitation before surgery. And I'm not talking about lung surgery. I mean, any surgery they will do better in that surgery and after. And so there are anesthesiologists who are involved in running these clinics where people are brought in. Another is pain, people on chronic amounts of opioids before a surgery. We have here, uh, Marie Hanna is leading this fantastic effort where we have a, a clinic where we bring patients in and work with them for months before their surgery to bring down or even eliminate the opiates that they're using. It makes a huge difference in how well their surgery goes and how much opiate they need after. So those are some examples of prehabilitation. And then, you know, we often care for patients in the ICU after surgery, and then they go home and they have these high rates like we talked about of, you know, PTSD, depression, anxiety. So we're starting to get involved in post-discharge, post-ICU clinics run by anesthesiologists, take, seeing those patients again, helping them through those difficult times, helping them recover and get back to full functional capacity to be able to work again, for example. Um, so it's an exciting time where we're really expanding into the into the full realm of uh, pre and post op care, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. That is so interesting. This is Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. You have been listening to my interview with Dr. Jed Walpole, an anesthesiologist and intensivist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and the creator and host of the ACRAC podcast. That's A-C-C-R-A-C on anesthesia and critical care. This podcast was focused on career issues of interest, especially to medical students and prospective medical students. I suggest you also listen to my interview with the same guest on a wider range of questions for a more general audience. Check it out.